0: Welcome to a very special series of ESA Explores. On the 31st of March 2021, the European Space Agency opened applications for its first astronaut selection in over a decade. In this series, we delve a bit deeper into the role and the attributes of ESA astronauts with a few of the people who know them best. Along the way, we discover there are so many different opportunities to work in space exploration, and there's no one linear pathway to getting there. We hope you enjoy this journey behind the scenes. And if you are applying to ESA's astronaut selection, we wish you best of luck. You'll find everything you need to know online at eSA.int/slash your way to space. I'm Ellie Kohler, Stephen Ennis is on the sound desk, and this is ESA Explores.
1: This. Nine,
0: eight, seven, six. Six. In this episode, we speak with Kirsten McDonnell. Kirsten is a utilization planning team lead for ESA. It's quite a mouthful, and rightly so, as she manages a team responsible for all the European hardware that travels to the International Space Station. Kirsten also takes care of the requirements planning team who determine how much astronaut time is available and allocate this to different science and research activities on board. But she can tell us a lot more about all that and her fascinating pathway to space. Welcome to the podcast, Kirsten.
1: When we say utilization, what we mean is all of the research that we conduct on the space station. We're essentially, there's crew time that's being spent On uh, systems repairing and keeping the station alive, there's crew time spent sleeping, eating, uh, cleaning, all of that kind of thing. And the remainder of that time uh, is referred to as utilization. And the science and activities that we do associated with science are all referred to as utilization when it comes to um, the International Space Station. Ah, Okay, so you're responsible for allocating that time? And And so, yeah, it's a mix of um, actually two roles. So I'm a team lead for a team of payload integration managers, and they're responsible for following a payload end-to-end. So from the very beginning, there's various ways to enter into the process, but if we're coming through um, peer-reviewed science proposals, then there's an announcement of opportunity and then proposals are selected, and then they're refined by defining the experiment science requirements. And um, so that document we refer to as ESR. uh, And from that point, um, we go into uh, developing the payload. The payload has to be verified, certified, tested, Uh, has to be safe for operating both on the launch vehicle and on the space station itself in Columbus or wherever it's going to operate. And then there are, there's a whole team of operations that develop the procedures and do a test run following through the procedures to make sure those work. There's logistics just to get the hardware from the point of where it was developed to a central logistics location. And from there, uh, ESA has a team that ships everything to the NASA launch site or sometimes we even ru- uh, launch from Russian vehicles. And uh, and so um, the payload integration managers essentially try to help liaise with all those teams and help the coordination so that everything runs smoothly, make sure that the teams are talking to each other, keep an integrated schedule so that we see the dependencies among the various teams, and basically follow the payload through until the end if anything uh, sometimes there's there are experiments that require, for example, in human research, they require multiple subjects. And so they the first time it flies, that's one thing, but then there's a repetition for future subjects. Other payloads have to be returned uh, quite short term. So say a biological payload, you're launching living samples and cells, and these require extreme, um, sometimes uh, very, very rigorous um, temperature requirements. And so we need to ensure with our counterparts, mainly NASA, that the, the science stays within the temperature limits and the cells inside or samples inside um, don't die, essentially keep them alive. So that is really have to, we have to follow through from the very beginning when the science team inserts these samples into the hardware until the very end when the samples are actually returned to ground and then finally sent back to the scientists for analysis. And so following all these steps, uh, it's really a role where we define our requirements towards NASA and let them know what we would like to do for our increment pairs. So we work um, in roughly six month slots of time and then uh, ensuring that that everything goes smoothly. And then the planning element is um, is where we I basically pull together all of the experiments and activities that we have ongoing from ESA, but also we have now um, experiments that come in what we call national contributions and commercial contributions that also uh, lead to a full complement of activities for an increment. And so I, I maintain essentially a strategic plan that shows all the activities that we have in our overall pool. Some are Continuations, some require multiple subjects, some are one flight only, and, um, and some haven't even started in the, has started yet. They're in the development phase. And so maintaining an overall strategic planning schedule to see uh, what activities we'd like to do when. ESA is entitled to 8.3% of all of the resources of the International Space Station. We barter our, our use of the space station By providing, for example, um, the automated transfer vehicles, ATV in the past, and now the European service module. And that's our way of essentially, in a way, in in quotes, paying our share towards using the space station. And so from that 8.3%, and what I say by resources, is literally the crew's time on orbit for conducting science but also um, the up mass and down mass. So bringing cargo up to the space station and then returning it later and, and everything else, including um, sometimes experiments require vacuum or venting, certain amount of power, data downlink. And so we're entitled to uh, that amount of resources. And so um, the planning aspect is uh, where I have another team called the requirements planning team. And we work by increment pairs, knowing um, that NASA assigns the international partners their resources based on the number of astronauts that are on orbit at at a given time and calculating how much time those astronauts will have for utilization and then dividing that uh, according to every different partner's share. Wow, so it's very detailed. You have to be super organized. <laughs> and it would take a long time as well. Like
0: how long is the process from, from start to finish with these experiments? Are we talking um, years? or?
1: Yes, it can be years. So it that part is really, that's where this job gets extremely interesting because every single payload is different. First of all, the development phase itself for highly complex payloads and things that We've never even tried to develop before it's really the first time we're doing it um it can take several years so for three four five years to develop a really complex payload then of course the the whole schedule is quite you know quite long. There are other cases where um, the hardware itself is a little less complex or we're able to use some hardware that's already commercial commercially available, and then the main step is just to ensure it's Qualified and safe for space, and so since you're not in the whole development process, then um, then that qualification and safety process is a bit shorter. So it can even be, for example, in some cases, uh, even a one year turnaround from the time the activity is defined to the time that it's fly flown, I should say. It, it really, uh, it's it's a very it's a job where we have first of all many science disciplines. There's, for example, human research, as I mentioned, biology. And then fluid physics, material science, environmental research. We have payloads on the outside of the Columbus platform, for example, radiation, fundamental science. And then there are some payloads that we call technology demonstrators, where we're trying to show how how a new technology works on orbit, but it's less uh, less about getting scientific data, more about trying out uh, how hardware works. And finally, we also support some education activities, which I find also extremely important for for the general public and for our future people that will be working in STEM in the future.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to ask you, what is
1: your background? So is your background science or how did you come to be in this role? I actually used to be in the Canadian Air Force. Wow. I went to Royal Military College and studied um, space science. And then I became an aerospace engineer for the Canadian military. I actually Had a very hard time choosing what I would like to do in university because I really liked a lot of different areas in science, and so I thought I might want to be a doctor. I loved sports and technology, so I was thinking maybe somehow um, sports medicine or something like that. And then this opportunity came up to um, to join the military, and I just thought the hands-on aspect of the the way they they train you and um, how um, in between the school years they actually sent me to various air force bases to perform the job for which I would become later the manager so i would become an aerospace engineer responsible for aircraft maintenance my first summer i spent wearing blue coveralls hands full of grease and actually taking apart an engine of a helicopter and learning uh, everything about you know fixed wing and and rotary wing aircraft and and how to maintain it and so I got to get my hands dirty, and I think it was an extremely good experience to to see what uh, the technicians are also doing because those are the people that I would be leading. What I studied in university with space science, uh, it was a mix of of, uh, mechanical engineering, electrical engineering, and then pure space uh, physics, such as uh, orbital mechanics, and I found that extremely interesting. And the Canadian Space Agency was uh, looking to fill a position through a secondment with the Canadian military. And that's really where my career in space began. So I managed to uh, go and support uh, the radar set operations, which is a remote sensing satellite. Things have changed a lot in in the more than twenty years ago because uh, we used to talk about recording the images on tape, how the tape would get full and we would have to wait until the next ground station to downlink the data. And then if we were over ground stations, then we could we could downlink directly. But when we were in more remote places, we would record on the tape and we had to prioritize imagery and it's just amazing how far we've come with regards to uh, how much data we can we record and, and this whole story of um, downlink and filling a tape and everything. It's really incredible. And then from there, I, I moved into um, astronaut training. So I joined the team in Canada for training the Canada Arm 2 I started uh, just at the time that um, the first two crew members, expedition two crew, uh, went up there and uh, operated Canada Arm for the first time and then trained basically every expedition crew from that. And so um, I found that really, really fascinating to be in that that area with training astronauts on a specialty and something that um, we had to keep updating our simulator because at that time, the space station kept growing and growing. And um, just to kind of come full circle, one of the simulations that we were training was actually taking Columbus out of the space shuttle and docking it to the space station itself. And now here I am working in Europe now with Columbus. Uh, So it is kind of interesting how these things uh, in this once you enter the space business becomes quite a small world. and. And we, we end up meeting again in various ways in the future.
0: Yeah. Wow. That is super interesting. So you would have been watching carefully or when Columbus was added to the station or what were you doing at that time? Yeah. <laughs> yeah,
1: so actually, that led me to um, to Europe. They were looking to build the course for the ATV and they didn't have... Um, such the same type of course that we had in Canada by then, so they hadn't been training astronauts on such a big element in the past. So they brought me in essentially to develop the training from from bare bones to a full training, a one-week training for ATV. And what I liked about it is that Yes, we were developing lessons, teaching the crew about the systems on ATV, how to transfer water. And, and one of the key, most exciting parts was, of course, how to monitor the vehicle during the rendezvous and docking. So although ATV doesn't have a pilot, we still wanted to have a crew in the loop just in case some of the systems were working off nominally and they might have to react. And so in, in preparing that training, it was I was involved with Airbus with ESA. We had NASA and Russian astronauts also supporting with their experience. And we were working a lot with our Russian colleagues because the ATV docks to the Russian module. And so, and it has a Russian docking system on it. And so it was really, really fun to discuss what it means for the crew to respond and how they would recognize if the vehicle was behaving off nominally. So we had to simulate what the camera would see. And and actually, one one interesting part was that once the vehicle is less than a meter away, even if it seems to be moving off normally, it's better for the crew to do nothing because it's more likely to dock than to to press uh, you know the escape or the abort button at that time because then the maneuver um, at that point the station is free floating and the maneuver might might actually cause more danger than and and then in the end uh, after all that training and all those discussions atv just behaved so phenomenally at you know the the docking was within centimeters of the first atv the contact sensors did not trigger and we immediately got the capture response because it entered into that cone so perfectly that the sensors weren't even depressed it just went directly into the docking cone so i'm really so impressed with the guidance navigation control engineers and the software itself, because it's behaving phenomenally for, for all five ATVs. And it was a really great project to work on.
0: i would be speaking about the variety of jobs that are available in the space industry. You've covered quite a variety of jobs that are available
1: in the space industry. I spoke about radarsat and operations, prioritizing what imagery to collect, training with Canada Arm and then taking that experience to build the training for ATV. After ATV1, the success of ATV1, I did find it repetitive to continue training on ATV because for me, the excitement was in building the lessons and giving the first training to the first crew. So I managed to train Peggy Whitson, who was the first crew member to follow the Rendezvous and docking of ATV. And then uh, shortly after that, I moved on to ATV cargo integration. So I was responsible for essentially filling ATV with cargo and ensuring that we made the best use of the cargo that cargo capabilities that the vehicle had. A huge part of our cargo actually comes from NASA and from other partners. And so it required a lot of communication with NASA. Also, we perform what's called a coupled loads analysis on the vehicle. And so once we determined how much fuel we would need, how much water and how much gas, the remainder mass available for bringing up additional, in addition to the mass of the vehicle itself, uh, would be dedicated to dry cargo. And so we would make an estimate of that remaining mass and perform a couple loads analysis. And from that point onward, Because that's required for the rocket and its own guidance and navigation and control to bring ATV into orbit, once we've performed that analysis, since it's quite intensive and we don't want to repeat it, we start doing, let's call it like a a three-dimensional Tetris to fill the bags and coordinate all of that. But uh, a fun part of that was more than just filling bags. um, NASA requested more and more late cargo capability, which means that ATV is normally filled in a nominal cargo situation. We can go through the the back end of ATV before it's mated with the thrusters and the propulsion tanks and everything. So ATV is actually built in two separate parts. So we would be able to physically just walk through the back area. But then once it's mated, it's brought vertical and put on top of the rocket. You can only get into ATV through the Russian hatch. And so we developed a new lift. That would allow people to descend, to allow one person at a t- time to descend through the Russian hatch on a platform that then unfolded and expanded in a, in a telescopic way so that we could add more and more cargo closer to the launch date. Imagine having to define everything you want to do four months in advance before the flight. It's nice to have the opportunity to, to load it as late as possible. We managed to actually increase our cargo carrying capabilities so significantly that it was actually extremely um, valuable towards ESA's uh, contribution in return for for this barter agreement. So, so then uh, from that project that's what led me now to your first question with what I'm doing now. <laughs> what what I like about what I'm doing right now is is the fact that I mentioned how at the end of high school I had a lot of different options because I just liked science and engineering and technology in general and I didn't know how to choose because there's so many different things I enjoy doing. With this position that I that I currently have, it allows me to have some insight into all types of science, actually. I mentioned, you know, the human research, biology, fluid science, uh, and material science, and fundamental physics. And so all these different experiments, even though I'm not the expert on them, I have a small hand in ensuring that we get them on orbit in time and they're successful. Uh, we have successful operations and, and we see it all the way to the end and seeing the data finally on the ground and, and what the scientists are doing with it in so many different areas. That's really, I think what keeps the job extremely interesting, it's never repetitive. Fantastic.
0: I mean, you've really dug into your role and how you got there and it's absolutely fascinating. Is, is there anything else that you'd add, say if somebody's looking at your career or something in this direction, is there any advice you'd give them?
1: Well, I would say follow what interests you. Don't be afraid to try new things. Don't be intimidated by by doing it because you know when I first started training astronauts, I was a lot younger, and I I thought you know who am I to train this one of the world's most famous astronauts like Sergei Krikalev or something? And and he actually said to me, you know, your job is, is to know one piece of the pie, and no one can know it all. But if you know your piece, the part you're instructing, become an expert on what you're teaching or become an expert. And this was teaching, but of course, in any position that you have, become the expert at what you're doing and throw yourself into it. That's when you'll see the best results. So I, I really thought that was great advice. And I like this idea that we can all focus on on our, our areas of expertise and then dig into it and learn as much as possible so that, that you know you get respect from your colleagues and and it takes you to surprising places sometimes as you your interests, new op- opportunities come up and you just follow them and see where a career can take you.
0: Absolutely. And thank <laughs> you very much, Kirsten. That was a fantastic conversation, really enlightening and um, I'm sure inspiring for a lot of people who are listening and thinking about where they might want to go or what they might want to do. So thank you very much for taking the time. My pleasure. To find out more about ESA's 2021 astronaut selection, visit the website esa.int slash your way to space that's your way t-o space thanks for listening to ESA explores if you have any feedback or ideas for future episodes of the podcast don't hesitate to get in touch via twitter at ESA using the hashtag ESA explores.